1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our first political panel of 2023. Happy New Year. Are things starting to work better than they did in 2022? Last year was marked by a breakdown in basic services like passport applications. The airports were in chaos and our health system in crisis. Well, the airports are in an even worse mess, but this time the issues are in the airlines file rather than the airports. The healthcare situation just keeps getting worse. Some stakeholders want Ottawa to take more control and the provinces want more money with no strings. Why not? And doctors are saying what we have been talking about for months, if not years, that it will take more than money to fix this. And in fact, there were a few changes that came in on New Year's Day. Maybe they will alleviate some of the pressure. Meanwhile, the government has joined a long list of countries Requiring negative COVID tests from passengers arriving from China, Hong Kong and Macau. Much of the science community says this is about politics, not evidence based public health. How so? What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740.
0: And now, the Recovering Politicians panel.
1: And now I'd like to welcome Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Gerard Kennedy, former Ontario Liberal MPP who served as Ontario's Education Minister from 2003 to 2006. And we're having a little bit of difficulty reaching Howard Hampton in uh, Fort Francis, but uh, hopefully we will we'll get him on as well. Happy New Year to you, Lisa and Gerard. You too, Libby. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Happy New Year to you, Libby.
1: Thank you. So uh, the word from, uh, you know, a big swath of the science community is that this move requiring the negative COVID tests uh, uh, is, is performative politics. Lisa, do you agree with that? I, I don't know the answer to it, but I can
3: say that it would be very unlikely that this uh, federal or provincial government here in Ontario would go off-brand and not take the most, I would say, cautious approach to, to dealing with COVID. Uh, this seems to be the, the way in which they've approached it in the past, and this is a very clear indication, Libby, that this is how they're going to approach it in the future, that if there's a concern out there. They're going to be seen to be acting in a way to do what they think is what they think is something that's going to be helpful, either uh, to make people feel more comfortable that they're doing something, uh, or that is actually helping in some way. But definitely not surprised they're doing it because it's as I said, completely on brand with both federal and province to do this.
1: Uh, Gerard, I think that Lisa might have hit it on the head saying making. People us more comfortable that they're doing something, uh, but do you think it's uh, just performative?
2: No, I don't. Uh, I used to uh, run medical labs uh, doing COVID testing until uh, uh, the fall of 2021, and including the airport, so I kind of got a, a, a funny really? view of it that, that isn't available to the average person. Um, there was early in the COVID, or at least in the mid part, um, they weren't uh, holding back folks, and the positivity rate was quite high. But it all depends what's happening. I think what a lot of the scientists are saying, this doesn't really make sense if if this and if that. Well, the problems for the the political deciders is the if this and if that are all kind of vague. And China has been literally all over the map in terms of its efforts. So if it was a high percentage of people deplaning that had COVID or new variants of COVID, they just need to know that. So the first reason to do it is is just uh, monitoring. And uh, and there are, as it was mentioned in the news, bit, there's there are other ways of monitoring. So I don't I think there's a there what the uh, political folks and the government folks don't say. is They don't always know what's happening. And so, like Lisa says, the the conservative, if I may, the small conservative thing to do is to uh, go to something that kind of works. There are lots of issues. The scientists are not wrong that it's not. It's, there's no blanket here. But it is important, I think, that we find out what is coming from China and China isn't fully cooperating. So uh, this is a clumsy way to do it, perhaps in some ways, uh, given that everybody else getting off planes from elsewhere won't have the same requirement. Uh, but there are gains to be had in terms of understanding, uh, especially the disease that changes all
3: the time.
1: Hmm. Uh, Lisa, do you think one of, one of the explanations that I have heard is that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that uh, China's not happy about this and it may force their hand or convince them to be more forthcoming about what is actually going on there and what new variants they might be tackling? Do you think that might work?
3: Well, unlikely. I mean, China is going to do what China wants to do. Not a bad idea, though, Libby. I mean, it, it would make sense if you were dealing with a rational uh, country. I don't think you're dealing with a rational government, to be honest, in, in there. I think, actually, from a political point of view, um, why you're seeing such outcry from the Chinese government is it's great domestic politics for them. Here, once again, is that bad Canada putting restrictions upon you and and how dare they tell you that you can't come to Canada? I think that's why there's such an outcry. I don't think they're necessarily going to do anything in reaction to it. It could be seen as a political gift to President Xi to try to shore up some kind of support that he currently is lacking and the way that he's dealing with COVID and the response in
1: China at this point in time. Gerard, do you think that it, it might uh, make them change their tune at all?
2: Well, I I think Lisa actually has some pretty good insights around some of the uh, more recent international stuff that's happening with China, uh, because, uh, you know, I think people are almost throwing up their hands in terms of what's happening. And and I think it was kind of this hard move away from the, the lockdowns and so on you know, and, and and away from the international community took place even longer ago, I think is, is highly problematic. I mean, this is one of the ways you can't trade with everyone, want access to financial markets and everything else, and then say, well, we're not going to be part of the World Health Organization's efforts to contain this disease. Um, I, I'm not qualified to say whether it could work or could influence. I think people weren't predicting they were going to lift their sanctions on uh, their own citizens, uh, but I think it's still probably premature, but I think it's worthwhile to try. Uh, this is, uh, you know, we can't have such an influential nation not observing some of the norms. This is a t- still a tough uh, disease. <laughs> they, we we they, are still not out of it. They,
1: mm-hmm. they seem to have gotten by with not not observing the norms for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and, uh, you know... Uh, i'm going to take a call from pat in toronto hi pat hi
2: libby Um, uh, you know my issue on all of this is we need some people to do some good marketing canada has a death rate which is one third of that in the u.s from covid but we don't make a big thing about it and the problem is Politicians are not marketers. We need to turn this over to the people who sell soap and toothpaste and all the rest of us. They will tell us how to motivate people and how to get people on side. Um, That's what's missing as far as I'm concerned.
1: Hmm. Okay, Pat. I don't know how... uh telling people that uh, we've, even if you convince them that we've done the best job in the world, I don't know how that's going to make people uh, wary of the next wave of it, which a lot of people say is coming. Uh, but moving right along on our topics, uh, we have this travel chaos again. Yes, there was a snowstorm. Yes, it wasn't only in Canada. Yes, there are other airlines that, that, that are in chaos. But, you know, I kind of wonder, why do we have a transport minister? And what exactly does he do, Lisa? Having been one,
3: um, Uh, I can tell you that he has a lot more power than he's wielding. Uh, I talked to a travel agent over the weekend, someone who used to book for me when I was in government and sometimes does bookings for me now. And you know, his first, he said it, Christmas Day was, was a day in which he worked for the entire day just because of the chaos in the system. And people are, are lots of people wanting to travel over the holiday with lots of challenges and hurdles along the way. But um, I mean, I do believe that there are some policy choices that this minister could take vis a vis Air Canada specifically, WestJet, um, Sunwing, that would send a clear signal. To the, to the management and to the boards of directors of those entities that they are seriously concerned about the impact on Canadian consumers. And it's got to be more than saying, put in an application to the Canadian Transportation Agency and they'll get back to you in two and a half years. That's not acceptable. So, you know, he's got a lot of tools in that tool chest and he can come out and he can come down with a, a lot of great force on, on all of these airlines that seem to be hoping that things are going to hold together. And clearly with a, a bit of turbulence, it all falls apart and falls apart spectacularly, I have to say. I mean, these are these are some major problems of cutting off air, airports in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba will not be receiving flights from, from a certain airline. I mean, these are really big decisions that have massive impacts. And um, the Canadian consumers is kind of being left out in the cold, literally. Well...
1: Yeah. And the other thing is, like, when they unveiled these new passenger, alleged passenger rights laws in September, and, I mean, I think that you could certainly claim that what happened over Christmas was weather-related. Nobody's going to get compensated, I don't think, unless they put that application in.
3: Yeah. When you put the Canadian Transportation Agency in as the buffer, that's a buffer from the government. The government can always make direct examples of the company. They always can can have an impact in a more fulsome way than going through the agency that is really just there to make sure that there's fair competition and fair treatment of the Canadian passenger. And I would be hoping... But there hasn't the, been
1: for years. What are you talking about? I know.
3: I would be hoping that Transport Canada has been asked to take a look at the tools that the minister has in order to bring some rigor back to What's happening? I mean, the on-time performance rates for, for some of these airlines is 55%. That's atrocious, absolutely abhorrent. Well, and, man. you know, se- step in. Sorry, Government needs to step
1: in. Uh, Gerard, you step in.
2: Well, I know, yeah, <laughs> I think, I think. well, I, I'm, and I'm sure Minister Agabra is thinking about things along the lines of what huh. the minister is saying, because this is a, a very haphazard situation out there for a traveler. Uh, But there's also the setup that we have. And I think part of the thing is we we really need to examine how we work when it breaks down. When when COVID happens, we need to understand that we should not be putting that under the rug, whether it's at the borders or the airports or anything. And right now, we're going through things that perhaps might have been predictable. How do you get restarted? And how do those airports that don't actually have a master, because that's one part of it, the airport, the airlines point at the airports, the airport's Point back at the airlines or at the federal government and so on. And it's just a frustrated traveler or consumer that's out there. And, uh, you know, like the airports, people may not realize respond to a, a board that is only partly appointed by different levels of government. And and they'd have a whole other kind of, you know, uh, focus going on their commercial part and so on. And bringing back the travel, uh, you know, services should have been somebody taking Charge somebody working with them because obviously people have uh, over promised and under delivered spectacularly here. And I think it, it matters. I think people got to trust that, that they're going to fly safely, that they're going to fly in some or, or do anything that is regulated in, in in a good way. And so I hope, you know, that uh, something strong does come uh, through because I think it does bring people's confidence down. And there are still challenges out there that we need. I, I think travel is, is, is one of those things that maybe doesn't seem as important, but it sure is if you're in the middle of it. Uh,
1: why does mister Algabra still have a job or that job?
2: I, I think Minister Algabra's done a lot of uh, different good things. I don't know that you... Where would you hold Minister Al-Gabra accountable? I don't... You know, every minister should be held accountable for their on the None of them are, are
1: hold themselves accountable, so, I mean... I, well, guess I, you means- know, I, I
2: would beg the different I don't know about the cabinets that, that Lisa's been in, but, I mean, you put out your... You know, your accountabilities, uh, this current federal government started very aligned to how to get governments to work better. They, they use some of the things that other countries had tried. And, you know, there's no excuse, I don't think, from the challenges. People understand there's a challenge that it's COVID, that you're cr- cranking up uh, airlines from zero to something. They've lost a lot of their staff. But they want to know why, and they want to see it. They want to see improvement relatively quickly, and they want to be protected along the way. They don't want to be experimented with. So, you know, the question here, I think, is why isn't the government communicating what it's doing, what's possible, and how these things uh, can work? Because, uh, you know, I don't think Lisa, with respect, or Minister Agaba have the kind of power to just make everything work, which is what I think. The assumption is out there. There's a lot of different pieces, but at a certain point, yes, governments become accountable. And uh, you know, got hes a—that is a very energetic minister, very capable person uh, for doing this work. The question is, why aren't we hearing more about the challenges that are being knocked down, and what are what is the plan in terms of getting us towards something that's near normal?
1: Uh, Lisa, should he still have that job? It's, all, it's always
3: up to the Prime Minister's office. I can't, I do not disagree at all with what Gerard said. What I will say is the, if I were sitting in Minister Alec Abra's position right now, I would be thinking, how do I solve this problem? Do I keep giving some kind of advice to the Prime Minister's office and options on how we can solve the problem? But he can only do what the PMO is going to allow him to do. And But the danger that you have in this position is if he continuously is talked about in terms of it's his fault, it's his fault, like we're saying right now, you know, why does he keep his job? Um, Prime Minister's office could very well make the determination, okay, well, we're going to throw this minister under the bus. We're going to bring in a new minister. We're going to give them the new marching orders because, quite frankly, this minister can't fix the problem because they've lost the confidence of the public, the stakeholders, whatever. So, you know, Minister al right now, he really has to be throwing out as many ideas. I have no doubt that he's working really hard because, He uh, obviously he he cares about the file, but he can only do what he can do, and it's really in the hands of the prime minister's office. Does he stay to solve the problem, or does he become um, does he become the I guess the scapegoat and a new minister brought in? And we'll have to see. That's hard politics. That's that's fair enough. And I want to be
2: clear. I think I that's you know I think we need both uh, both things to operate. The public expectation you know, right now is you know, when things work, we don't question them. But the setup and transportation is it doesn't lend itself to being fixed quickly to some extent. And I'm not calling I'm not saying Mr. Algabra, I think, needs to communicate. That's very different than some performative thing that says that won't change anything is mm-hmm. is in terms of making something happen. But we do have a disconnect. We have a disconnect on COVID and we have a current disconnect on I'm sorry, on COVID responses and and on transportation sort of pulling together and on health care. You know, it would be fairly predictable that all those workers were, you know, were going to retire after such a traumatic time uh, in the front lines. And, you know, there is doesn't seem to be a collaborative plan and on something so fundamental. So, you know, I believe good things can happen in government when there's good leadership. I think Minister O'Gabbara, for example, is a very good leader. And I'd like to be interested to see if he started putting some of those things out there. The ideas that Lisa talks about, uh, you know, people might have a better understanding because, you know, this is not a snap your fingers. New minister knew anything is going to, is going to cause it to get fixed overnight. And I think the public sort of understands that but they have a right to only, you know, to so much patience and to expect
4: to see the progress.
3: Hmm. Can I give you an example, Libby, of sure. something that the minister could do? When we were faced with a problem with moving grain in the country back in 2014, it was a terrible winter, and both railways said, no, we can't do it because we don't have enough manpower or whatever. The government of the day came in and said, okay, we're going to fine you a million bucks every time that you're not moving the grain. Guess what? They started moving the grain. They really focused on how they were going to utilize and get their, get their rails, um, their cars, and their locomotives and their people all lined up and they complained about it and they're upset about it but the government can step in and levy fines if um federally regulated entities aren't doing what they've promised to do.
1: Yeah, right. Except uh the airline specifically Air Canada keeps getting, you know, vast amounts of of money and bailouts. And that ha- and and so the rail companies get So out do rail them. companies, <laughs> right? But but they don't need to do
3: anything for it. Yeah. Well, he's. I think he's got to turn his attention to Via. I think Via's one
1: thing that he does have to solve because that's
3: square within the government.
1: Gerard brought up healthcare, and mm-hmm. uh, well, we're just coming off the holidays, and and the holidays make whatever shortages are there even worse. Um, and but at least uh, healthcare workers get a bit of a break, which certainly they need. Uh, where are we at with that, Gerard?
2: Well, I'm quite concerned. You know, in terms of, I mean, it's still good care going on. I think we got to be very careful of people who know a little bit about the system or encounter it, as and lots of us have. Uh, There are, there's good care happening, but we don't want to awfulize it and say that it's terrible. But there's also unacceptable standards being breached here, and most of them are at the provincial level. But we really do need something unusual to happen for the, the the lack of staffing seems to be endemic. We are we have an experiment in provinces like Ontario with very low staffing rates to start with, low number of hospital beds, low number of nurses, anywhere in the world, um, which, you know, I think was a mistake when it happened back in the 90s. And so, but, but we really do need to have some kind of, not quite a Marshall Plan that's a little dramatic, but some special plan that involves uh, the sector, uh, the people working in it have to have confidence that conditions are gonna get better where this is going to cycle downwards for a while. And, uh, you know, I think that's squarely with the the ministers of health federally, but certainly especially provincially. uh, You know, I would love to see people step forward in some kind of unusual way, working with the sector, because I see people, you know, stirring up the old debates. Let's get some private sector. Let's get some things happening here. And, you know, this is another case where the system is really a non-system. The hospitals are not being... Run by the minister, but there's a lot of things that can be done. And, and in none of these things should there be excuses. Progress can be made, and I think people need to see that
5: very quickly.
1: Lisa, we had some changes at the beginning of the year. Notably, a pharmacist can now uh, diagnose and, and prescribe a, a, a small set of uh, minor conditions that's already happening in other provinces. Do you have a thought on uh, how much pressure that may take off the system? One of the things that I notice is that if you go to a pharmacy, you'd see they probably have some of the same labor shortage issues that everybody else does. And so I'm not sure if they can ramp up to, uh, you know, the optimal level. You know, it's an idea worth pursuing. Let me just put it
3: that way. It's an idea worth pursuing. One of the when I got the the note this morning from your producer about the topics, one of the questions I had on this one is: Are we getting more people going into the ER for things like um, pink eye, for things like cold sores? Is that is that what we're seeing in terms of the the number of people that are being treated? Has there been a change? So I, I I'm very interested in knowing what has happened. Uh, in terms of who's visiting ERs and and why there's such a a backlog for for people to to get treatment. I look at the issue on healthcare um, and say that there's, there's two pieces for me. There's the fixing of healthcare, which definitely needs to happen, and maybe this will be helpful of alleviating the pressure in the system. And then there's the funding of the healthcare. And I know you mentioned it at the top, Libby, in terms of the provinces and the federal government i i my observation is that this is all a little bit of a dance between the yeah. feds and the prov and they are going to get a deal and they are going to come to an agreement there will be strings and and provinces will accept it and the federal government will give what they're going to give and and that should happen in the next week so the funding of the side is going to be i think um, not not nothing for us to get really too excited about but the, the fixing of it I think it's a big deal. Um, I read a piece in one of the newspapers this morning. I thought was really smart, and they, they said in order to fix it, uh, you got to take a look at the human resources side of it. And yeah, that's not a bad idea. I mean, one of the one of the researchers noted that there's a, an extraordinarily high amount of um, bullying and gossiping happening within our system that can cause a lot of stress and strain on the professionals and everybody needs to be trained management needs to be trained. And so do,
1: so do the staff. Bullying need to be and trained. God, I, I, I missed that piece.
3: Yeah, I'll flip it to you later. So it's just somebody, uh, it's, it's written by two people who have been studying the issue and they went through all of what they thought their solves were. And one of them really focused on the HR around what was happening in hospitals, and they made the assertion that there's bullying and gossiping happening within hospitals that well, causing a lot of
1: distress. S- certainly be gossiping, but
3: bullying by what level to what level? Yeah, that's a great question. Don't know. They don't get into it, certainly oh. for the authors. But as I said, it's uh, I'll, I will send it to you because I know you have an interest in these things, and you can take a look at the piece. Hmm. That's... There's a, there's
2: always a tension there between uh, the administrations, which are often non-medical and yeah. non-healthcare, and and so on. But I, I think what we again need we need some transparency. Hospitals used to have local boards that make annual reports to the local communities. We don't know, and I, I I can just say from personal experience with family members, there is a and neighbors. There's a great difference between individual institutions, and so I you know I'd like to take what Lisa's saying and take it further. Let's look at the the hr and let's look at the outcomes because they're being published at you know by kai hi this getting into the health research a year or two later we need to find out on an ongoing basis how things are working we need to have the ability to learn uh, how they can get better because again there's a lot of good happening out there we can't just say the system where it's raising fears right now not about Tinka, not about the things that that the pharmacists can do, but that people are worried that the ER won't be there for them or their family member or their, their other loved ones. That that at the time it's needed, and I think when that happens, the system really has to do something responsive and it has to let people do some of the good ideas that are in there because it's a very uh, you know. It's, the fault-free oriented system, which is good, but also risk-free. And that's not always good. There has to be change responsive to what people need. And there's a lot of pent-up need in the system. There's a lot of people who didn't get seen. There are diseases that are more advanced than they should yep, have been. And, and that needs to be a special focus with special funding and special approaches, because those are quiet noises. No one's going to know that somebody's out there suffering unless... Somebody makes it their business, and I, I'm hoping that's ministers of health because they've got the most influence on the fixing that Lisa's talking about. Uh, and but also any of the leadership that is out there. It's it's time to stop doing things the old way uh, and and keeping things out of view from the public.
1: Well, they they all say that they and there have been uh, you know pieces of funding. To address that, but is it has it worked? Who knows. And in terms of the ER, I I think I mentioned this before that uh, my first uh, in depth piece in Toronto as a cub reporter I won't say how many years ago was on uh, crisis and pressure in the ER, and I think that. Even though this has been talked about forever, it's always been regarded as kind of a, a safety valve place for all the other things that don't work or are not accessible, like a family doctor. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that hasn't—it yeah. hasn't changed, uh, yeah. probably not in half a century. All
2: right. <laughs> I don't very much. That's when you were a cover reporter. But no, that's not when I. I want to make
1: it clear. <laughs> I, was a
2: cub, I was a cub politician back in in ninety seven, and yes, the emergency rooms were the focal point. But the fact that they they're there it, again in the public eye is because the other parts aren't as responsive. There's been doctor retirements. Primary care is harder to get, especially in certain areas. And but I do think these things can be addressed in an orderly fashion, and. You know, the, the the ability of people to talk about what's wrong, to trust the public wanting to get it fixed more than they want to blame, I think that's a huge part of fixing our public services. Uh, people don't want to take that risk. If they admit there's a problem, then it's going to be a, a blame thing and they're going to be held accountable. They might be sent down the road rather than given a mandate to fix it. We've really got to do better with our essential public services and let people know where the problems are. And and try and invite people in. There's a lot of patients and patients' families out there right now that should have a way of giving feedback so that it's visible and it's not just, you know, things we find out too late.
1: Okay, Lisa, last 20 seconds to you. Well, uh, it is a large issue, but if
3: we don't fix this problem now, I don't think that there is going to be a time in the future better than, than this moment in time when all of the governments really are focused on healthcare as our voters. And if we want to drive to a better solution, uh, we do have to continue to talk about it like we do right now, Libby. Okay.
1: Thank you so much, Lisa Rate and Gerard Kennedy. I appreciate your insight. Bye-bye. Yeah. Take care. Liz. Thanks. Thanks. Bye bye. Alrighty, Uh We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the latest in Russia's brutal war on Ukraine. A big victory for Ukraine on New Year's Eve, was it? Seems like yesterday. Uh, we'll talk about that and whether it is some kind of turning point when we come back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zuma Radio.
1: Welcome back. Does this new year mark a turning point in Russia's brutal war on Ukraine? On New Year's Eve, Ukraine struck a facility housing many of their troops in Makivka. In a highly unusual move, the Russians admitted to multiple casualties, reporting that as many as 63 died in the missile attack while Ukraine claimed that the attack killed 400 troops and wounded 300 more. Now, the weapon used by the Ukrainians was a HIMARS launch system, which is American-made. And meanwhile, Russia has stepped up attacks on civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, and there doesn't seem to be any prospect of a ceasefire. Uh What do you think? Where are we at? 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Roman Waschuk, former Canadian ambassador to Ukraine, Phil Vasilevsky, a 2022 Templeton Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, and Dr. Andriy Zayernikov, Zayernyuk, professor of history at the University of Winnipeg. Thank you for joining us, all of you. Welcome, happy New Year.
4: Same to you.
1: Yeah, yeah. Not, not much happy New Year uh, uh, on this note for sure. Let's begin with uh, Roman. Do you see this as any kind of turning point?
4: Uh, I see it as uh, existing trends becoming more visible uh, to uh, sort of the the outside observer. Uh, if we look at how the Ukrainians uh, especially pushed the Russians out of Kherson in November, uh, very similar use of HIMARS, which are extremely targeted. They fall within a couple of meters of where they're supposed to be, of where they're supposed to go, which means that if you've got the intel, and there are a lot of people in those areas who don't like the Russians and uh, pass along info, if you've got... Uh, Sort of uh, the Western world's satellite intel, you can pinpoint uh, Russian activities and take out command posts, or in this case, a very ill-advised concentration of troops, uh, which was made even worse by the fact that some brilliant Russian logistics genius decided that to use the basement of this building as an ammo dump. <laughs> Yeah. Uh so because the the destruction of the building is greater than these missiles could have done on on their own. So in effect the poor people inside, I mean, and most of them apparently were mobilized Russians who uh well had decided that opposing the regime is uh is, is too dangerous. Well I think that it that choice did not work out very well for them. Hmm.
1: Uh, Dr. Zeyrnyuk, what do you think is behind, it's unusual, that the the Russians admitted to what they admitted to and did so so promptly? How do you read that?
6: Uh, I think uh, the answer is very simple, because the explosion was so visible, it was all over social media, and uh, the number of casualties was so high, they uh, had to admit it, at least partially.
1: And uh, what I also find interesting is that the criticism seems to be coming from the far-right or the nationalist side, which is really in favor of the war, as opposed to people who might be starting to oppose it, uh, possibly because their relatives are being used as cannon fodder.
6: Yes, nationalists are criticizing Russian generals, the way they conduct uh, this war, the way they run this war, as to the opposition, um, a real opposition to Putin's regime actually wants Ukraine's victory and the defeat of Russia and uh, Russian casualties, however, sadly,
5: is part of that.
1: Uh, Phil Vasilevsky, do you see this as any kind of turning point?
5: I don't see this as an exact turning point. It is a definite tactical defeat for the Russians. they basically lost the battalion, approximately 600 people uh, either dead or wounded uh, or uh, missing in action at this point. The casualty figures from my review of Russian tel- uh, telegram and blogger channels is that we're talking about several hundred casualties. What it, uh, strategically, its effect, though, uh, is that... Um, It strikes again at the the regime's uh, ability to portray itself as competent to run a war. And you're correct. A lot of the criticism that is coming to Putin is not for being involved in this war, but for not fighting it successfully, for not right now uh, having the upper hand. Uh, And that is where the threat to Putin's uh, regime stability right now is coming, is from the right, is from the ultra-nationalists, is from the people who are actually pro-war, but also are very disappointed at the way it is being fought so far.
1: So, uh, Roman, does that mean that if there's any kind of threat to his regime, uh, it it could turn out with something even worse? Uh,
4: Potentially, although I, I, I would say that uh, in, in the case of Russia, a change is as good as a rest because uh, these people will be very engaged in working things out among each other and less able to uh, attack Ukrainians or anybody else in the world. Uh, but I think one of the uh, one of the right wing critics, uh, Igor Strelkov, Gierkin, uh, has uh, written I think yesterday or today that uh, Russia finds itself stuck uh it cannot retreat but uh its military is so incompetent and ill-equipped to actually advance that if it tries advancing it could implode the regime uh, and his comparison was to 1917 and uh the provisional government's kerensky offensive of the summer of 17 that basically led to the revolution uh, led to the overthrow uh, uh, takeover by the Bolsheviks, so so th- there's there's a sense that they've ended up in in a dead end. Uh, I, I mean, dead being the operative word here, uh, and and that they're in a dilemma. And here, ironically, even though Ukraine is seen as a smaller, weaker side, Ukraine has the whole NATO alliance and much of the Western world to rely on. So it is actually in a better situation for dealing with winter, for dealing with supplies, for getting newer technology than the Russians, who are basically resorting to shopping in Iran uh, to buy these uh, cheap and cheerful well, not
1: so cheerful, actually. Uh, <laughs> Shahid drones. That it's, means it's, martyr. Suicide drones, yeah. Yeah. Um, So—but uh, again— you know the Russians are stepping up their attacks, basically on the civilian population. They're weaponizing the winter. Doctor Zayernyuk, is, is is does there come a point when that works for them?
6: Well, we'll okay. see. I mean, we are halfway through this winter, and so far Ukraine is coping. Um, civilians suffer all over Ukraine, and the only thing is. Russian campaign of targeting Ukrainian infrastructure has accomplished so far is to basically erase to an extent this divide between the rare and kind of frontline cities and towns because infrastructure is targeted all over Ukraine all the way to the western border and uh, um, I think Ukrainians are more unanimous today even than if we compare it with just summer or spring of last year when it comes to the Russian invasion, and they all feel part of the front effort um, to an extent.
1: Uh, Phil, do you agree? I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> Dr. york said he thinks the winter is half over. I think it's barely begun.
5: For anyone sitting in a trench right now, that's wet and cold, uh, it's just begun. However, the whatever the calendar says, uh, right now, and I agree with uh, uh, both of uh, your other guests uh, on their estimates of the situation. Right now, we're involved in a war of attrition, and since the fall, since the uh, counteroffensive the Ukrainians in fall is basically stabilized along the front line that's over uh, a thousand kilometers long. And this is due to the high level of losses on both sides, which has attrited their professional armies, the weather, and also a severe artillery ammunition shortage on both sides. And so what we're waiting to see, and this has been my estimate since the beginning, is whoever can reconstitute their army the quickest uh, with trained, motivated soldiers and support them logistically uh, will uh, win this war in the end. And we are now at a race to see who's going to be able to do that. And I believe that because of the support from NATO, um, and other countries uh, that the Ukrainians in the long run have the advantage on, on this as we go further into, um,
1: uh, 2023.
5: But what's a win? A win is right now expressed by the Ukrainians would be the recovery of all of their territory, uh, per the, um, Limits of it in 1991, when Ukraine became independent with the fall of the Soviet Union.
1: But the Russians now, won't stop.
5: Achieve, whether they achieve that goal uh, or not remains to be seen. Uh, but right now, that is their stated war aim, while the stated Russian war aims are to maintain their control of the territories they seized both in their first invasion of 2014 and in 2022. And since we're so far apart in war aims then the only way to find out who is going to be, quote-unquote, winning is through further war. And 2023 is going to be very decisive in deciding who uh, wins and who loses. Because this is a fight. This is an existential fight both sides. For Ukraine, it's an existential fight for its nationhood. On Putin's side, at least, it's an existential fight for the continuation of his regime.
1: Okay. I want to pick up on that. We've got to take another break. We're going to be talking about that on the other side of it. People, the numbers to call. If you have comments, 416-360-0740. Toll free one 866 740 We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zuma Radio.
1: Welcome back. We are talking about Russia's brutal war on Ukraine and whether uh, the attack that killed so many Russian soldiers on New Year's Eve marks some kind of turning point. Before the break, we were talking about what would constitute winning the war, and uh, Phil Vasilevsky outlined the war aims of both sides. But Roman Waschuk, even if Ukraine keeps, uh, you know, uh, achieving their goals, if Russia doesn't stop, uh, that doesn't constitute an end.
4: It doesn't, but that assumes that Russia is able to keep doing what it's doing uh endlessly I and mean, for one thing if we look at the last uh mass drone assault on ukraine i think there are about 44 of these suicide drones all of them were shot down so on the one hand you could say very impressive massive uh cheap drone assault but if every one of them is shot down it doesn't really amount to anything uh and maybe I'll, looking for analogies in the past isn't always rewarding but uh give you an example. I was, post my first posting was in Moscow from 88 to 91 and in June of uh, 91 I was talking to a, it was a Dutch military attache about the fact that I was seeing signs of, you know, across the, nation, the republics of the USSR of the thing falling apart and he said it can't fall apart. I mean, they've got the KGB, they've got a huge army, they're a nuclear power, this thing can't fall apart. And, you know, his career was invested in analyzing this huge big country. Uh, but then, you know, two months later, the regime fell apart. Um, so Russia is a personalist, brittle, authoritarian, moving to totalitarian state. And so what we see one month may not be what we see the next, especially if bad news keeps coming.
1: Hmm. Uh, that sounds, I don't know, that sounds a, a little bit vague to me. Dr. Zayarnyuk.
6: I actually agree with Roman. Um so the the problem with authoritarian regimes is that they are the power is highly concentrated, it's all centered on one man, and once we remove Putin there will be chaos, there will be disarray. Um we don't know what will come out of it, but uh yeah, I agree that Russia is quite brittle, this Putin's Putin's Russia um
1: I'll show today. So who's,
5: who's,
1: who, who could remove him, Phil?
5: Um, I just wrote on this in Foreign Policy Research Institute's um, webpage in an article called Will Russia Survive Until 2084, which is an allusion to Andrei Amarik's historic essay, Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? Because I see the same dynamics that our guests have just mentioned in today's Russian politics and in the situation of the war. The Russian people forgive just about anything of the rulers except losing a war. And considering that Russia today is awash in more different military organizations um, loyal to different people, the Army, the FSB, uh, Wagner Group, now the ethnic uh, battalions under Kadyrov and and others, we have a situation that if the Russian army was to be defeated, was to collapse on the Ukrainian front, you could have, as uh, the good ambassador referred to earlier, a February 1917 situation again in Russia. And that is it's not fordained, but that could be one of the possibilities we see as this war continues, and especially if Russia is defeated on the battlefield and the Russian army collapses sort of like in the um, uh, the military use, uh, scenes that were in that uh, great uh, movie, Dr. Zhivago.
1: Wow. Uh, but presumably, uh, it's not going to take until 2084.
5: <laughs> well, that's uh, just a little literary license, uh, mm-hmm. again, referring to the, um, the yeah. essay, Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? And Amerik was off by only about seven years. So we do not know, and the brittleness that was mentioned earlier is the main factor uh, that we have to, to look at, uh, that this is a possibility. Because Putin's regime is designed um, mainly for him to stay in power, but if he should somehow lose power uh, or try and transfer, try transfer of power, this historically in Russian history has been when things try and, uh, things fall apart.
1: -hmm. Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, who made a brilliant appearance at that joint session of Congress, and we see him all the time, and he seems to be doing everything. Right. And uh, he wants the West to try to stop the Russians from getting these arms from Iran, even though, I guess, uh, the effectiveness is dubious. And then you hear about North Korea maybe being in there. Roman Waschuk, what's going on with that?
4: Well, again, the... uh the Russians are finding they can only procure from rogue regimes uh because let's say China may uh empathize with Russia's desire to stick it to the US uh via Ukraine but it's not going to risk its whole economy and its huge economic relationship with with the EU and the US uh by openly supplying supplying weapon systems so they they are left really kind of bottom feeding uh, from people who can't supply them with the sort of tech, uh, the type of tech that the Ukrainians are getting uh, from uh, Western partners and that they're developing themselves. I think one of the, there's a very interesting article today in the uh, Wall Street Journal about Ukraine's bottom up kind of uh, Silicon Valley garage approach to uh, Developing both uh, communications and surveillance technologies as well as some weapon systems. So that's something that, again, a brittle authoritarian system like the Russian one can't do. The Ukrainians are innovating in the field.
1: Hmm. And uh, are the. It- I mean, I know Canada, say, promised to give them stuff. We don't have stuff. Is there enough stuff being made in the United States to keep them supplied as long as is necessary?
5: I think
4: we've heard the Secretary General of NATO uh, encouraging member countries to up their military production. Because, yes, I mean, uh, the uh, stuff people were keeping uh, in, in the warehouse is being depleted. Um and that you know Canada does have suppliers that could that could uh, uh, make more. We also have uh, equipment that was on its way to being retired that could be repurposed. Uh, so it requires uh, actually Western armies that have been lulled into thinking in decades for procurement to think in terms of weeks and months.
1: Yeah, that's a big ask.
4: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you, you, you got to be able to, to be nimble and transform. I mean, I, I think it's, it's actually kind of uh, ironic since uh, I spent a lot of my time in uh, in Ukraine from 14 to 19 uh, supervising art projects where we were going around lecturing the Ukrainians on how to do things right. Sure. And now, to some extent, the tables are turned where uh, you're finding Western military advisors saying, uh, the thing we're talking about now is learn to think and act like a Ukrainian. Uh, really? So I think the, the, the time for lecturing is kind of passed, and it's time for mutual learning. Fast.
1: Phil Vasilevsky?
5: So the ambassador hit it right on the head there. Uh, NATO has, and I think the rest of the world, has relearned lessons uh, that go back to the First World War. And I talked about the artillery uh, shell shortage that's happening now. happened back in 1914 and 1915. Um, industry never seems to be geared towards what is really needed uh, until that need appears uh, in armaments. In so what we need uh, now is for all of the NATO countries together, which is, I think, b- at least 50% of the world's gross domestic product, uh, to be prioritizing their military-industrial complex to provide the shells and the other equipment that the Ukrainians need for our own security and for our own purposes um, right now.
1: Dr. Zayernyuk where does this leave Canada? I mean, we're pretty hopeless at that. Mm-hmm. Yes,
6: Canada doesn't have either industrial capacity or stored, uh, weapons to help Ukraine much. Um, but the problem is not just industrial capacity of the West. It's also about this kind of calibrated uh, held by dosage. And, uh, we've seen how it increased, um, last year, because, for example, if you think about anti-aircraft, anti-missile systems, uh, patriots, you know, in summer, no one would mention, you know, giving them to Ukraine in fall. It's a reality, but still U.S. would not send, for example, one range missile sign that would allow Ukraine uh command centers and depots in the Russian in the Russian era. There, there is still this fear of escalation, uh, potential escalation of the conflict. And it actually just held this war to drag on indefinitely. It doesn't contribute to Ukraine's victory or Russia's defeat. And this is the only best Chance scenario in this war, um, Russian defeat. And uh, unfortunately, it takes too much time for the West to realize that and to keep up um, with military aid.
1: Okay, I'm looking at the clock. We are just about out of time. Roman, I'm going to give you the last 20 seconds, no more. Uh, what's your prediction about what comes next? Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, I would think that we will, in fact, see a resolution of this war uh, this year. Uh, One of the first indications will be when the ground freezes over, because it's been unusually warm in Ukraine. When the ground freezes over in a week or two, will the Ukrainians, who have got uh, some reserve troops trained in the UK, including by Canadians, are they able to deploy them and their equipment to help make a, a further dent on the Russians and add to the uh, uh, to, to the sense of disappointment uh, and potentially uh, uh, discontent uh, on the Russian side?
1: Okay, we're out of time. Thank you so much, Roman Waschuk, Phil Vasilevsky, and Dr. Andrei Zayernyuk. And that is all the time we have for today.